I have one goal in my life, and that is to see the Lord and to make much of Him. My goal as your pastor is for you to know your Savior. Not to know Him in your head. Not to know Him distantly. But to know your Savior for who and what He is. The very source and fountain of your life. And that your whole life would be wrapped up in him and nothing else. And that he would ruin you for everything that this world has to offer. Church, that is my heart for you. The verses that we are covering today bring an end to the confrontation between a single solitary man and and then an entire mob of people. A mob that was the establishment, the ruling religious authorities, and a large group of people, of church people, attending a church service on that day. A confrontation that had been brought about because of the actions of this man. Because he had, in the midst of the most anticipated, most celebrated religious production of the year, stood up and stood against everything that was being taught and preached by these men in this country concerning this God. The religious authorities had Jesus on their radar for some time now, especially after the healing of that lame man on the Sabbath, as told to us in chapter 5. It was then that they began to really keep their eye on him, desiring to arrest him and rein in his heresy. But then there came some disturbing news concerning this man. He had somehow miraculously fed a large group of people in the wilderness, upwards of 10,000 people as told to us in chapter 6. And even more disturbing was the claim that he made afterwards. They were told that what he has said was that he was equal with God, that he was God. They had it on reputable sources that he said, I am, which was a bit more than troubling for them. But then he had made a fatal flaw, a huge mistake, He offended his followers so that most of them turned back from following him when he told them that to be part of him, they had to eat his body. What a whack job. And then in the midst of the feast or tabernacles, he shows up again. And again, he begins teaching. And the things that he taught were amazingly insightful. But what right did he have to teach here, now? during our festival? Where was his degree from seminary? Who had been his mentor? No one within our religious tradition, within our approved list of men. And then on the last day of the celebration, he stood up. He stood up in the middle of the climatic part of the service, just when the water was being poured onto the altar. And he ruined one of the rabbi's performances by claiming loudly that he possessed eternal life-giving water. And then, and then he does the unthinkable again. He once again takes upon himself the mantle of God by saying, I am the light of the world. These men could not take it any longer. They wouldn't take this kind of arrogance and blasphemy any longer. So they confront him on the solid ground that it was such a whack job that he didn't even recognize that he was standing alone making claims about himself. No one else was backing him up. It was then that this single, this single solitary man 
who dared take on an entire religious system, dared to stand against every other person around him. This is when he clearly, boldly, and using very precise language, tells the religious leaders and the crowd there, and even those that we are told had come to believe in him, that they were all wrong concerning God. None of them, not a single one of them, knew God. They were promoting a false worship to a false God, using the right historical lineage, using the right scriptures, and using the right location, and even using the right feast. But they had supplanted the real God with a false man-made God that they could manipulate, that they could regulate, that they could control, that they got to say how he ruled over them. This is where we pick up in our conversation between this crowd and this man. But before we begin with our verses, stop and think about what I have just said. Think about the bravery and the confidence that this man is demonstrating. The boldness that he had to take on an entire religious system that claimed to worship the very God that stood in front of them. Yes, he was God incarnate. But don't let that detract from the fact that he was truly human. And it was his, not his divine self that was taking on that crowd of, the, of these people. It was his truly human self that was doing that. He was showing us what it means to be obedient. Obedient to the one that we claimed to be our God. Dwell on the manner in which he did all of this. He never apologized to them. He didn't fret over the fact that he offended them. He wasn't concerned that they would get mad at him because he told them that they were wrong and that they taught a false God and that they were dead in their sins. He was much too concerned about what truly mattered, about important things, things like obedience to his father, like his father receiving the glory due his name, like the fact that these people all mocked and degraded the true father, like the fact that those that he had been given by his father must be made aware of their need for salvation. So let's jump back into this ongoing argument, the battle between this mob and that man. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. Jesus had acknowledged a few moments ago that these people that they were physical descendants of Abraham. But then he quickly points out the truth that they were not spiritual descendants of him. They didn't have his heart for the Lord or for the word of God. The complete and true word of God found no place in their hearts. Verses 28 and 29. Stop for a minute. Let that statement sink in. Who were these people that Jesus was speaking to? the religious leaders, and a group of people who had come to worship in the temple. Most of those people had memorized at least the, five the first five books of the Bible. Most of them lived according to a very strict set of rules, rules that they thought that they kept, rules that they thought proved that they were God's children. These weren't Gentiles. These weren't atheists. These weren't the left-wing, radical Antifa people. 
These were those inside the moral majority, within evangelicalism, people who served within the church, who were deacons, even elders, within the established, approved of religion. And they had the scriptures in their midst, not just part of them. They lacked none of them. They had everything that God had given them in order to know him. And yet they didn't. Why? Jesus said it was because they had no place for his word in their heart, and their actions and hearts towards him proved that they weren't his. So? So what's in your heart when the radical truth of the exclusivity of God is told unaltered to you? That no matter how nice, how good or kind your mom was before she died, outside of knowing Christ, she died and went to hell. That no one, no one accepts Jesus into their heart. And that no amount of manipulation, emotional, physical, or spiritual can bring about regeneration. That membership, participation, attendance, or family lineage in an organization do not, cannot bring about salvation. That people are not basically good. That we are immoral monsters of iniquity. Every one of us. That we are sinners. And we must be told that. Reminded of it. And that outside of the obedience to the word of God, wrought about by the grace of God and giving a person the faith to believe in the truth of God, being given the ability to understand and take in the truth of his word into their hearts, that no one outside of this can be saved, can be moved from the family of Satan to the family of God. And once that move has been made, once that move has been made, that person is saved and will be saved for all eternity. These people had the word of God in their heads. Many people today do as well, but they didn't have it in their hearts. And when the radical truth of who God is was revealed to them, they rejected it. They hated the man that told them this truth. They ostracized him, wanted to arrest and kill him. This is the clear, correct application and explanation of the text that's in front of us. And it should cause us all to rethink what the church is. It should cause us to rethink what we think it means to be a Christian. It should cause us to stop and rethink how we present the gospel to people. What we think describes a true servant of this God that we have made a profession of faith towards, that we claim to know. Who we claim to know means nothing. Does your heart have the ability to obey the word of God? Not just accept it, obey it. In verse 31, Jesus confronted those within this group who claimed to believe in him. And he told them, if you abide in my word, you are, my truly, you are truly my disciples. Abide means to live in, to obey completely. And if you do that, he goes on, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Well, what was he setting them free from? The false religion that they thought was true religion free from the bondage of sin, and free from being part of the family of Satan. These people who claimed belief in this Christ, people who had memorized scripture, who attended services religiously, who lived piously, who gave to the church, these people did not know God. They were slaves to sin and of the father of lies. 
Jesus was never afraid of confrontation. He is not the man that is presented in most churches today. The men that desire to present a kind, soft-spoken, well-mannered, never-offending Jesus and preach that false gospel are not telling the truth. Jesus was offensive. He had no problem with being offensive. He had no issue with people or with telling people the truth. And he did this because Jesus is love. Because he loves the Father. John 14, 31 tells us, But I do as the Father has commanded me, so that the world may know that I love the Father. He was a button pusher, a scab picker. He wouldn't allow people to claim to know his Father, the I Am, that sent him when they didn't. And for the reason for this was that when they did this, when they claimed him as their father and their God, they openly mocked him by replacing him with a false God, one that they could manipulate to allowing them back into his family, outside of his propitiation, back into his good graces based on their efforts. And so what was the fruit of this scab picking, of this button pushing? The last sentence of verse 41. They said to him, We are not born of sexual immorality. We have one Father, even God. They proved that they don't have the same heart as Abraham, that they were still dead in their sins. They take the same tact that the religious leaders had done already. They got nasty. They got personal. They slung some mud. They proved that while Jesus had told them that they don't know him or his father, they do know about him. They know his family, his earthly family, and they know that Joseph isn't his father. And now, these people who we are told believed in Jesus, who obviously knew about his background before this day, these people, because he had challenged them with the truth, turn on him. And then they make a claim that they can't back up, no matter how much they think it's reality. Jesus said to them, verse 42, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God, and I am here. I came not on my own accord, but he sent me. This is still the same truth today. If God were your father, you would love him, Jesus. Not your version of Jesus, not what you learned in Sunday school about Jesus, but what the scriptures teach about Jesus. And you would obey that word, submit to that word, no matter how hard that word may be for you to obey, no matter how hard that word may be for you to hear and even comprehend. You must allow the word to be offensive to your flesh and then submit to it if you were his. Something that Jesus tells these folks on that day in this place, verse 43. He says, why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. He didn't say that it was because they couldn't comprehend his word or because his word was challenging to them. They could not bear to hear his word. It was offensive to the religious minds in their hearts. And he goes on, verse 44, You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Verse 45, but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So what truth is Jesus talking about here? The radical exclusivity of God in salvation. It's not based on works, keeping the law, offering animal sacrifices, 
Salvation is of him alone. It is his. The truth that this man that is standing in front of them is the same man that stood in front of the parents of Samson. The same man who walked with Abraham on the way to Sodom. The same God that Adam and Eve walked with in the cool of the evening in the garden. These were the truths that Jesus proclaimed. That he is God alongside of his father. And that no one could come to the father, could be saved outside of belief in him. And Jesus doesn't say that although he speaks truth, they don't believe him. As if he couldn't convince them of this truth. He said, because he speaks truth, they don't believe him. It was truth that was unbelievable, offensive, and divisive to them. And Jesus speaks truth again in verses 46 and 7. Which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The radically amazing thing about verse 46 is the question itself. Here, this man stood in front of this mob, people who knew him, who knew his family, his heritage. He stood in front of them after challenging them with himself and stating that he is from the Father and they don't know his Father. And as proof that they don't know his Father and that he is from the Father, that he is in fact the I Am, he asked them, which of you convicts me of sin? Our verses don't tell us how this question was asked. But I would guess that he asked this question and then he just let it hang there for a while. Because if any one of these people, any of them, could have come forward and said, on May 23rd, you slandered me. Or, hey, last week I heard you talking trash about the baker. Or, when you were in school, I remember you kicking that dog. If any of them could have laid any charge of sin against him, he would have been proved a liar. And there was nothing but crickets. And the amazing thing about this is that Jesus made this statement about himself. He could say he never sinned without being, becoming conceited sinful in self-exaltation. How is this possible? How did Jesus live a sinless life? This question is an important question to ask in our quest to know Jesus, the real Jesus of the Bible. Well, the easy answer is that he was born without sin, so it was easy for him to live without sin. But Adam was born without sin. And he failed the very first time he was put to the test. Yeah, but Jesus is God. So, so there's that. Ah, now we're getting somewhere. You have just stripped Jesus of his humanity and replaced it with an ancient heresy that claimed that Jesus wasn't truly human. That he wasn't really human. And that his divine nature was at play while he walked on the earth. And because of that, Hebrews 4.15 really means nothing at all. After all, Jesus wasn't really like us. So maybe he can kind of sympathize with our temptations. But he really doesn't know what it is to be tempted. Not like we do. This is blasphemy and heresy, and worship of a false god. Because Hebrews tells us we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, 
just as we are, yet was without sin. So how was Jesus able to live a sinless life in the midst of this world that is controlled by, overrun with, and even oozing with sin? Well, James gives us insight into how this is done. In chapter 4, verse 7, he says, Submit yourself to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. That truth is coupled with Psalms 119, verse 11. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Submission and dependence on the word of God. That can't be it. That can't be how Jesus lived a life without sin. That's too common, too plain. Where's the miraculous? Well, herein lies the problem. We overlook the forest for the trees. We think that submission and dependence on the word of God can't be enough. So we do neither. We don't think that love for God and submission to him has power. And that, could, that power could have saved Adam, could have kept Adam. But, before I forget, there was this one superpower that Jesus had as he walked the earth. There was this one conduit that leaked him with the Father and with the heavenly. Ah, I knew it. He was different than us. He was like Superman. He looked like us, acted like us, but he was different than us. Well, that superpower, that link, was the Holy Spirit. We are told that it was the Holy Spirit who brought about the circumstances of the birth of Christ in Luke 1.35, which says, The angel answered Mary and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. That on the day of his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended in bodily form like a dove upon him. A voice came from heaven which said, you are my beloved son, and you I am well pleased. Luke 3.22. That it was the Spirit who led Jesus to be tested. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Luke 4.1. That it was the Spirit who empowered his public ministry. Then Jesus returned in power of the Spirit to Galilee, and the news of him went out throughout all the surrounding region, Luke 4.14. And that Jesus knew where his superpower came from, Luke 4.18. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That last bit, the bit about Jesus knowing where his superpower came from, happened when a scroll was just handed to him. And it just so happened that he opened it and read it. And that scroll is now what we call the book of Isaiah, chapter 11 to be precise. This is what it says surrounding what he read. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit, and the spirit of Yahweh will rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and of the fear of Yahweh and his delight shall be in the fear of Yahweh speaking of Christ and he shall not judge by what he sees or de or decide disputes by what he his ears hear but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth and shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Fifty chapters later, Isaiah will write prophecy once again concerning Jesus. Hear these sentences from, verse, from chapter 61. 
The Spirit of the Lord Yahweh is upon me, because Yahweh has anointed me to bring the good news to the poor. He has sent me to the bind up the broken hearted. This is Jesus speaking, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisons to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of Yahweh's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of Yahweh, that he may be glorified. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. That's verses 1 through 4. That's just one sentence. And it goes on. For I, Yahweh, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I faithfully give them their recompense and will make an everlasting covenant with them. Their offspring shall be known among the nations and their descendants in the midst of the peoples. All who see them shall acknowledge them and that they are the offspring Yahweh has blessed. And then verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in Yahweh. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with a garment of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress, as a bride adorns herself with jewels. This is Christ speaking. This is how Jesus was able to live a sinless life. This was his superpower. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit, devoted to his Father, and completely dependent on having the Word permeate his life. This was his superpower. And which of these things has he not given to us? His bride. Yeah, he is that bridegroom that he talks about in that last verse of Isaiah that I quoted, where he exalts in God because he has, been, that he has clothed him in the garment of salvation. He is the bridegroom who has decked himself out in a beautiful headdress. But we, we are the bride, the one that adorns herself with jewels. Folks, this is our Savior, our Lord, the real Jesus. He did live a sinless life in order to save us from our sins. But his sinlessness had nothing to do with his divine nature. It had everything to do with the same things that we have been given. The Holy Spirit to regenerate our hearts. A love for the Father and for his word. We just place too little importance on any of these things to be able to really enjoy the benefits of all of these things. We will not take the medicine that the doctor has prescribed because we think it's common, it's old, it's lacking in power. And for this reason, we remain weak and ill. But in our verses today, Jesus answers his own question. In verse 47, he tells them uh, once again why they don't hear him. They may have the word, but they don't have the spirit. They don't have the heart to love him or his father or his word. Again, there were on that day three groups of people in that crowd. The disciples who never said a word. And the second group, those that were described as the Jews in verse 22, they were the religious leaders. And this third group, the one that we have been hearing from and Jesus has been talking to, those are the ones that were told believed in him. They're the ones that he's been having this conversation with, the ones that slung that mud at him, the ones that called him a bastard because they were offended by his truth. And then in verse 48, that second group, 
the religious leaders, they jump back into the fray to galvanize their relationship with those that they thought that they had lost to this man. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? What these men are doing is laying a charge of heresy, an attack on the monotheistic nature of the, of the biblical God against Jesus. Their response to Jesus back in verse 33, when he told them that if they obeyed his word and, uh, and remained in him, that they would be free to know the truth, was to make the claim that they were the true seed of Abraham. The Samaritans weren't that. Add to that, they have now just made the accusation that he has a demon. Both of these things were associated with heresy as found in Psalm 106, verse 36 and 7. But Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I don't seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. The answer to the charges laid against him by the religious leaders comes in completely ignoring the charge that he's a Samaritan. Ethnic heritage had nothing to do with the issue here. The issue was made clear in the response by Jesus. I honor my father. Here's the issue. His actions, his words, no matter how diametrically opposed they were to that religious system, honor his father. The same father that he has just told these men, men who claim to know and serve God that they don't know. And his proof was their actions. You don't honor me. The father and the son are so, linkly, are so closely linked that to dishonor one is to not know the other. This has great implications for us today. In our day when it seems like nothing, it means nothing to violate the second commandment. Oh, not with depictions of the father. Oh, no, we would never do that. Let's just make pretty little pictures of Jesus. He won't mind. And we can use them as evidence that the Jesus that we desire to be truth is reality. This is not honoring the son. Let's make a political sign and have Jesus run for president in 2020. He won't mind. This is not honoring the son. Let's tell Jesus or let's tell everyone that Jesus loves them just as they are that he has a great plan for their lives, that he desires them to be with him forever, that he died for their sins. And if they desire to get on the fast track to success in this life, well, they need to get on the Jesus train. He won't mind. This is not honoring the son. Jesus may not have minded how these people spoke to him. They may not, he may not have been offended by their snarky attacks against him. He may not have said anything when they would steal glory from him. But this does not prove that it is safe to dishonor the son. Do not think that it's a small thing. Because there is one that seeks to bring glory to Jesus. Not himself, but his father. And as Jesus warned these men, he is the judge. And Jesus said, verse 51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Here is why you must honor the Son. Jesus once again uses that phrase, Thus saith the Lord. In him is life, and outside of him is death. He knows that he's losing those that have claimed to believe in him, that he's losing favor with the masses because of the things that he said. But this doesn't change what he is saying. And he did this not because he's mean or mean-spirited, but because the words that he used were true. And this was a matter of life and death. 
There was and is an eternal separation that was being spoken of here. And the one thing that could save these people, any of these people, all of these people, was his words. And the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my words, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died in the prophets? Who do you make yourself out to be? Finally, they are finally grasping the truth that Jesus has been telling them. He's the eternal I am. In him was life. Outside of him was death. But in reality, they weren't grasping the truth. What they were doing was grasping at straws. They used the physical deaths of these men as evidence that Jesus was a liar, a lunatic, and a heretic. And the last question that they ask him proved that they're completely disregarding everything that he is telling them. They ask him who he is making himself out to be. Now, to be fair, people are strange, weird, delusional. You'll run across people who make themselves out to be all kinds of things. In their minds, they're rock gods, rock stars, but in fact, they just have basic talents. In their minds, they're a baseball legend. But in fact, they were really just mediocre in high school. In their minds, they are a stunning beauty and will post pictures of themselves everywhere. Truthfully, they're not. People are the same now as they were then. These men had run across people who made themselves out to be something that they were not. And these men thought that they had trapped Jesus in his own words. They thought that they had found the fatal flaw in his claims. And they were going to exploit that flaw and destroy all his statements about himself by pressing this argument. The first part of their argument came in a statement that they thought was airtight. You're not saying that you're greater than Abraham, are you? This is the same kind of thinking that the woman at the well had in chapter 4. She had made that same kind of statement. There she said, you are not greater than our father Jacob, are you? As we saw there in that encounter, Jesus proved that he was, in fact, greater than Jacob by telling this woman things about herself that no stranger could have ever known. But these men, however, are not holding up Jacob, but Abraham, the man that God had made this eternal covenant with the one to whom he promised that his seed would be like the sand of the shore and that all the nations would be blessed through. The same Abraham that God spoke face to face with. And they used the very words of Jesus in their argument. You said that if you keep my words, you won't die. Yet Abraham and all the prophets died. Their logic was sound. Their argument was airtight. They were completely right. And they were dead wrong. The reason for this can be found in the life that they were holding on to, that they were putting forward in their argument. The life that they were living for. The same life that most evangelicals today hold on to, live for, and will almost do anything to prolong. The very same life that Jesus came to save us from. The very life that Jesus compares true life, his life, with over and again. He's not talking about this life, this existence that we call life. That life that he didn't come to make better for us. He came to give us life and life more abundantly. The very life that he did give to Abraham, who did die, but who lives. This is the God who called to Moses, who revealed himself to that man on the day through a burning bush. And in that time, he said, 
I am the, fa- the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God did not say, I was the God of your father, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He said that I am that God. Those men may have died. They may have passed out of this realm, out of this existence, but those men live. And that God, the one that revealed himself to Moses as the I am, has something more to say to these men on this day. Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. The argument that Jesus, I'm sorry, the answer that Jesus gives to their argument is sublime. He doesn't address what they think is his Achilles heels to his claim of deity, that he couldn't even get into simple facts of life and death right. He once again points to the fact that the God that they claim to know and worship as God is his father, not just his God, his father. And then he tells them that it is that God, that father that glorifies him. And Jesus then crosses the line. He goes too far. He calls these men out for what they are. Liars. Well, how were these men lying? Are they lying about Abraham and the prophets dying? No. They're lying about their relationship with God. And they didn't know it. Or did they? In essence, what Jesus is saying is that because they called God their God and worshipped him as they desired and understood him to be outside of Christ, outside of the clear word of God, even though they were sincere in their worship, sincere in their actions, they were sincerely wrong and weren't just mistaken, not just off base. They were lying. And just as Jesus had told those in this group on that day that to be his disciple, you must abide in his word, the same holds for those who claim to know God, his Father. Jesus abides in the word of his Father. These men who called Jesus, who who Jesus has just called a liar, who have been holding up as their star witness to the fact that Jesus was, in fact, a liar and a lunatic, they held up the man Abraham, the man that they said was their spiritual father. And it was that same man that this truth teller holds up as his star witness as to who he is. Verse 56 and 7. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day, He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You were not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? These men were incredulous. This man was absolutely a liar and a lunatic. Now he is telling us that Abraham, a man who lived over a thousand years ago, that Abraham saw him. That Abraham knew this Jesus. And that this man, this liar and lunatic, who is much less than 50 years old, actually claims to have seen Abraham. These men, and even us, we would be right in being skeptical or incredulous if they, or if we, lived in a vacuum. But neither of us do, either them or us. They had the word of God. They knew that God had promised a savior to Adam and Eve in in the one who would crush the head of the serpent. They had been given the word of God and foretold of the new covenant, the covenant that would be different than the old, that would be given by God into the hearts of those that were his. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. They had been told of the one who would usher in this new covenant, that he was the coming Messiah, 
Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. They have been told about the immaculate conception of this Messiah. Isaiah 7, 14. These men knew the, the circumstances surrounding the birth of this man, Yeshua, Jesus, which literally means, his name literally means God with us. They were witnesses to his miracles. They were witnesses to the life that he had lived. None of them, remember, none of them could convict him of sin. All they needed to do was just come up with one. And they knew the truth that he taught. Abraham did see Jesus. And that Jesus did see him face to face. We're told that many times in Genesis. Genesis 12, verses 6 and 7. Genesis 17, 1 through 22. Genesis 18, 1 through 33. All of these men knew these verses. They knew these accounts. They had them memorized. They had taught them. They also knew verses such as Exodus 33:20 that says, But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. The Jewish people knew that no one could see God and live. So much so that when the future parents of Samson were visited by God, they were terrified. Judges 13.3 says, And the angel of Yahweh appeared to the woman and said, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. And that account ends this way, verses 21 through 23. The angel of, your, of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of Yahweh. And Manoah said to his wife, We will surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If Yahweh had meant to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering in our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. These men should have known. They had the scriptures. They knew that God was one, a plural noun and then a singular noun. They knew that no man could, saw, could see God and live, but they had many accounts of God visiting people, even Abraham, and then living. And they had the promise of the Messiah and the new covenant. And these men could not believe that this man, this one who stood before them, was that Messiah. They was not, these men were not of his family. They were preaching a false god, a god that was not his father. Verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Here again is that statement. Thus says the Lord. The statement that was made by those that were prophets of God. And then this man follows up this statement with a statement that no prophet had ever made, could ever make. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus very clearly explains to these men that what they were trying to understand physically was only explained supernaturally, spiritually. Yes, this man of less than 50 years of age, this man who stood against them, who claimed that they did not know God, has just claimed that he is the God that they don't know. And these men understood that final statement by Jesus very clearly. They weren't confused by the claim that he had just made. They knew they had just crossed the line. And there was no more wiggle room for discussion about who or what this guy was claiming to be. He had just taken on the full and complete mantle of the eternal I am as his own. And upon hearing this, they fell at his feet and worshipped him. Verse 50. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is who Jesus is and who he claimed to be. Yeshua, God among us, the great Emmanuel. But many, if not most of those people on that day were unable to see him 
for who he is. They were dead in their trespasses and sins. They needed him to become their savior. They needed him to fulfill his calling, to be obedient to his father in becoming the Christ. The only means for the salvation of their souls and propitiation for their sins. Those that the father had given to his son would have their hearts regenerated by God himself. But first, the son would have to make restitution for those sons and those sins. Listen to how this was accomplished. How this man, this God, the one that you call as your Savior, how he regenerated you and purchased you from your self-imposed eternal life of hell. The one who elected you to be adopted back into his family, to have communion once again with him. How this was accomplished. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? For he grew up before him like a plant and like a, a root out of the dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and equated with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that is before it is silent before it shears. He not he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the living, the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, and he shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand, and out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is Jesus. This is the Lord I desire for you to know. There is no salvation in any false God 
I don't care if his name is Jesus, Muhammad, or anything else. If it is not the Jesus of the Bible, the one that we have read about, that we are told about, if this Jesus that will offend your flesh, if this Jesus is not your Savior, you are doomed for all eternity. No matter how pretty you are, no matter how good your life is here, no matter how often some false prophet wants to tell you that that false Jesus can and has saved you, if you are not willing to submit your life in obedience to his word, you are doomed. But there's hope. If this is you, if you realize that you don't know this Savior, there's hope. Because he is working in your life now, in your heart now. Run to this Jesus and be saved. Confess your sins. Confess him as Lord. And you will be saved. He died for the sins of his people. And just as Abraham may have died, he lives. And just as we may die, because he lives, we will live. Let's pray.